0: Happy Sabbath! Aloha! Boy, they have really not a sing in Hawaii. We sure appreciate uh, the good music here. And uh, matter of fact, it was 22 or 3 years ago, I did a series of meetings in Micronesia, and the theme song was, Jesus is coming soon. So I, I knew that when I got here. It was good to hear it again. Um, I was sitting by Elder Watson, I kind of leaned over and whispered and said, You let me know if a church opens up somewhere in Hawaii. And I wasn't just making that up. I I told Karen and I, have been talking to each other. I think the Lord's going to come before my hair turns gray. What do you think? Uh, One thing I want to tell you about, and it's actually connected with the message this morning, Um. Amazing Facts is going to be doing something I think is very important. I want your prayers. There are way more ex Seventh day Adventist Christians in Hawaii, in North America, than there are practicing. There is a tremendous harvest field of people who once knew the Lord but got discouraged. A lot of prodigals. And so we're doing a special program. Elder Wilson was kind enough to tell us we get uplinked from the General Conference uh, Worship Auditorium, and the beginning of the year, in January 13, 14, 15, Amazing Facts is going to be doing uh, a brief series four meetings called Reclaim Your Faith, and we're directing it especially to people that once knew the message or were once baptized or went through the schools and for whatever reason have become disconnected. Now, how many of you know somebody in that category? What if we had a program that you could bring them to? Bring them to your house. Turn on the Hope Channel and just say, would you come have some soup with me and some bread? And I want to just watch a one-hour program with you. And uh, then just pray that God will talk to their hearts and invite them back. There's a big, uh, big group of people that knew the message that need to just hear the Father's voice calling them home. So please pray for that program, Reclaiming Your Faith. Now, that ties in with the message today, which is really dealing with not turning back. We were talking about soldiers yesterday, and I told you I might have to make this part two. If you're going to be a soldier, you need to have resolve and tenacity and determination. To do what your commander has asked you to do. Why don't you pray with me just a moment more. Father, in this beautiful Sabbath day, we thank you for the the clouds and the breeze. And we just now pray that the breeze of your spirit will blow through this place and especially our hearts. Uh, Speak to us, Lord. Encourage us. Help us be more like Jesus. As a result of our time worshiping you and opening your word, we pray in his name. Amen. I'm inspired by the stories I often read in history of the military exploits and the bravery of soldiers. And you've studied the Civil War, for example. How many times, it doesn't matter north or south, the commanders would send their men charging into an absolutely withering blizzard of enemy fire, and they knew the likelihood that they would be mowed down was about 70%, might not die, but they were at least going to get wounded, and they went. Wow, that takes courage. A lot of stories where people went on what they thought were suicide missions, but they went. Now, one of the keys to being brave and going forward as a soldier and not being afraid of what the enemy might throw at you is if You have resigned yourself to the fact that you're already dead. Once you're already dead, you have nothing to fear from the enemy. So you commit yourself, you say, I am going to take up my cross and follow Christ. And if we're crucified with Christ, then nothing that that the devil could throw at us and no temptation. If you're dead, then everything gets a lot easier. One of the stories in particular that is um, encouraging to me, it's really a really fantastic story, and, and if I can fantasize, could I go back in time to some different part of history, where would I go back to? I would like to go back and be part of the Lewis and Clark Expedition. Now I know here in Hawaii you probably want to go back to Captain Cook. I'd love to have landed when he didn't see what it looked like back then. Wow, that would have been something. But first on my list is if I could be on that expedition. Thomas Jefferson had just bought the Louisiana Purchase from Napoleon. They had just expanded the size of the United States by about one-third. The problem was they did not know what they had bought because very few people, just a few trappers, had been west of the Mississippi in the Missouri. And so Jefferson got together what they called the Core of Discovery led by two captains that had been proven to be very brave and determined men. of course Lewis and Clark. And he sent them with a group of about 40 men and said, I want you to cross the continent. There's no bus, there's no freeway, there's no interstate, there's no railroad. Maybe we'll find that the Missouri River somehow connects with a lake that then connects with the Pacific. You will find the Northwest Passage and that would be one of the greatest discoveries because you can connect the oceans of Europe and Asia. They really thought that maybe somehow you could take the Mississippi or Missouri and connect it to the ocean. But beyond that, they said, we need to know what the land is like. We don't know what we bought. Meet the people there. And they were given these gifts and things to meet the different natives they would meet along the way. Take notes. Send back specimens. They spent all day catching a prairie dog. And they actually, that prairie dog survived and made it back to Jefferson. So then they took off, 1804, took them two years. The rigors and the hardships they encountered were phenomenal. Keep in mind, they had to paddle upstream for about a year and a half. Sometimes they had to take all of their gear unload it and portage some little waterfall. At one point, when they had to portage Great Falls in Missouri, they understood from the Indians that uh, it was going to, they calculated it was going to take them uh, maybe a day to carry their boats around. It took them a month. They had to drag their boats up the hill, stepping on prickly pear cactus for a month with all their gear All their ammunition, all the samples, out in the sun. They'd pull until they fell down. At night, they'd patch their moccasins and sandals again. Just the things they went to. Wintertime, got stuck in the mountains, ran out of food, ate the horses. All along the way, it wouldn't have taken much for them to just turn the boat around and paddle downstream. Home. Friends. But they went on because their commander... The president had said, cross the continent. Boy, but they saw some things that were incredible, too. They saw a land flowing with milk and honey. And I wish I could have been on that expedition, not for the hardships, but just to see some of the things they saw unspoiled. That would have been something. They never even considered turning back took them a year and a half, and finally, when they paddled down the Columbia River and they got to the Pacific Ocean, Meriwether Lewis wrote in his journal, oh, the joy. After a year and a half of trying to get to the ocean they'd never been to before. And you know, it's interesting, you read the story in the diary. When they finally left the Missouri and started getting out into the Great Plains, one of the One of the soldiers, I think it may have been Patrick Gass, Patrick Gass by himself was amazing because he actually not only survived the Lewis and Clark Expedition and numerous Indian Wars, by the Civil War, he was 93, missing one eye, and he offered to enlist. He had been in the Lewis and Clark Expedition. He lived through all these presidents. Can you imagine knowing Daniel Boone and Thomas Jefferson and all of these characters, all the way to Davy Crockett? And then... uh, seeing all that change in history quite a story but when they finally made it oh i started telling you patrick Gass, he wrote when we finally got to the great plains he said we had never dreamed that there was that much expanse he said you got to keep in mind that those of us who grew up on the east coast you could leave the atlantic ocean and a squirrel could hop from tree to tree until he got to st louis he said we just couldn't imagine a country with no trees So they saw wonders they just couldn't even imagine. But they finally reached their destination. And they were so ecstatic. Oh, the joy. You know, it took them a year and a half to get there. They spent a winter in the rain, hoping to meet a ship to give the messages to. Finally took off. Only took them about six months to get back. Going downstream, they're so excited to get home. But when I read that story, it reminds me of another story in the Bible that you find in Numbers 13 about some soldiers that are sent on a mission to bring back some good word. Jefferson told Lewis and Clark, bring back some good word. We want to encourage people to forge ahead beyond the Missouri, to settle the land. By the way, you have to keep in mind the Spanish were making their way up Mexico, and Jefferson knew that if this was to be one continent, that if they did not have settlers that came and occupied the land, it was going to Spain. And so they were in a hurry to get them across, to bring back word, to encourage the people to settle this frontier they just bought from the French. Well, God promised his people the promised land. And after going through the wilderness for about a year, they went to Mount Sinai, they built the tabernacle, they finally come to the borders, and some of them are a little apprehensive about going into the promised land because they've heard stories that, yeah, it might be a nice land, but there's some very powerful nations there. How will we overcome them? And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send men to spy the land of Canaan, to which I'm giving to the children of Israel. Send from each tribe of their fathers a man, one of the leaders among them. So 12 spies were chosen. They were also soldiers. And it lists their names. Most of their names have sort of evaporated into the oblivion of biblical history. But most of us remember the names of two of those soldiers. What were their names? Joshua and Caleb. And then he gave them more specific instructions. Verse 17. Numbers 13, verse 17. So Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan and said to them, Go up this way into the south and go to the mountains and see what the land is like, whether the people who dwell in it are strong or weak, few or many, whether the land they dwell in is good or bad, whether the cities they inhabit are like camps or strongholds, whether the land is rich or poor, whether there are forests or not. See if they've got any great plains. Be of good courage and bring some of the fruit of the land. Now the time was the season of first ripe grapes. So it was during the fall, the grape harvest. And they went and they spied the land from the wilderness of Zin as far as Rehob to the entrance of Hamath. And they went up through the south and they came to Hebron. Ahiam, Shishai, and Talmai, the descendants of Anak, were there. Now Hebron was built seven years before Zoan in Egypt. And they came to the valley of Eshkol, and they cut down a branch with one cluster of grapes, and they carried it between two of them on a pole. So they brought some of the pomegranates and the figs. And the place was called the valley of Eshkol because they cut down a cluster which the men, because of the cluster which the men of Israel had cut down. And they returned from spying out the land after forty days. Now right away I wanna tell you there was a big difference between two of those spies and the other 10. When they first crossed the Jordan River, you know the first city they saw when they crossed? Jericho. They were camped not far from Jericho. And 10 of the spies looked at the tall, massive walls of Jericho and said, how in the world are we ever gonna be able to conquer a city that is fortified like this? And they just shook their heads. And then as they went up into the mountains of Judea, which was known as Hebron back then, it was inhabited by a race of giants called the Anakim, the children of Anak. And every one of them looked like the cousin of Goliath. It says the king was taller than Goliath. The king had a bed that was 13 feet long. doesn't tell how tall he was. It just says his bed was 13 feet long, a bed of iron. Any other bed would have broken a temper pedic. <laughs> so here's this whole race of giants. They said, We felt like grasshoppers in their size. And 10 of the spies said, We can never take this land. They just shook their heads. They made up their minds. They're too big. They said, We felt like grasshoppers in their sight. But Joshua and Caleb had a completely different attitude. Before Joshua and Caleb ever crossed the Jordan to begin to investigate the promised land, they heard the orders of their commander. And he said, go and bring back some of the fruit of the land. They heard him say, "Is a land flowing with milk and honey. They heard him say, this is the land God has given us. The reason it was called the promised land is because God had made a promise. And they believed it. And so they had in their minds, God is going to give us this land. And so you've got completely different perspectives as they begin to look at the promised land. Ten of them are looking at all of the problems. Two of them are looking at all the promises. Ten of them are looking at all the trials they expect to encounter. Two of them are looking at the size of the grapes, the pomegranates, and the figs. Caleb went up through the mountains of Hebron there, and he said, wow, wow. Look at the springs. Look at the fertile soil. Ten of them said, are you kidding? Look at the giants. What makes you think we could ever have this land? When they got up there to Carmel, Mount Carmel, where Elijah, Elijah rather, had that showdown, that's where they cut down the cluster of grapes on that same mountain. One cluster so big it took two men to carry it. Now, I had grapes for breakfast. And I was able, I want you to know I'm pretty fit. I lifted a whole cluster with one hand. Can you imagine a cluster of grapes so big? I forget where I was. Oh, I was in Australia, and they brought me some grapes there, and I'm not kidding. Each grape was like that big. When you get to heaven, that land where it says we'll plant vineyards and eat the fruit of them, you're going to invite your friends over for dinner, and you'll say, We're going to have a grape. This cluster of grapes was so big, it took two men. What two men do you think decided to carry the cluster? Do you know if you go to the land of Israel today, they've got a logo for the Israeli tourism industry. The logo is two men carrying one gargantuan cluster of grapes between them, and they do that in honor of the two first optimistic tourists that went into the promised land who they believe was Joshua and Caleb. So they spied out the land. Now, Caleb and Joshua were worried because they could see the negative attitude of their friends was going to infect everybody when they came to give a report. And it would have been nice to sit by the campfire, at least interesting, and hear their discussions at night when some of them would say, Wow, have you seen the fortifications of the Hittites and the Perizzites? And the Jebusites and the rugged country, and how are we ever going to be able to overcome them? They have been a warlike people for generations. We just came out of slavery. What do we know about war? And they were having these discussions, and Joshua and Caleb would say, What are you guys talking about? God, look what he did for us. Look how far he's brought us. Look at all the miracles. Why would we doubt that he can? I don't know all the answers, but if he brought us this far, he can bring us all the way. And they probably had a lot of interesting discussions. What's sad is the percentage that of twelve, only two said, we can make it. Well, after spying the land, they came back. Verse 26, they departed and came back to Moses and Aaron after forty days in the congregation of the children of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. And they brought word to them, and they showed the congregation the fruit of the land. Now, I think this is important. I've got an opinion. I can't prove it, but you can't prove me wrong, so I'm going to share it, that Caleb and Joshua made it a point to outrun their other ten friends. Because the first report you hear sounds positive. The first thing you hear is they're getting fruit. And I think that some sentinel was with Moses and he's watching the plane. They had to cross this salt flat And they saw the mirage of some figures coming towards them. They said, we think they're coming back. We see someone coming. A little cloud of dust coming up across this this, uh, salt flatten. And there are two of them. We see two of them, and then there's another ten. And two of them are running. It says that they're carrying something. And pretty soon, Joshua and Caleb are the ones, and they come. And they're surrounded by a cloud of fruit flies. Because they've got this cluster of grapes they've been carrying for days. And their pockets are stuffed full of sticky figs and pomelos and pomegranates and all this fruit. And here they're tossing grapes to people. Here's the fruit of the land. It's a great land. And you read what it says. Look, verse 27. We went to the land where you sent us and truly it flows with milk and honey and here is the fruit. And the people are going, yay, woo. And they're eating the grapes and they're passing them around and having a great time. But by then, the other ten caught up. Notice the next verse. They're huffing and puffing. Ten of the spies said, "Oh, Nevertheless, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. Moreover, we saw the descendants of Enoch there, and the Amalekites dwell in the land to the south, and the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites dwell in the mountains, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the banks and the Jordan. And all the people began to oh, oh, no, oh, my. They could see the terror in the reports. And they began to doubt. Caleb quieted the people. Why did he quiet the people? Do you quiet someone if they're not making noise? The people all began to moan. They all began to sigh. And what does Caleb do? He jumps up on a rock where they can all see him. He quiets the people before Moses. And what does he say? Let us go up at once and take possession, for we are well able to overcome. I've underlined that in my Bible. That's a wonderful promise. We are not only able, we are well able. We are more than able. We are exceedingly abundantly above all that you might think or ask able to overcome. Now, I'd like to give you a report today. You can do everything Jesus asks you to do. Ah, you missed your best chance. I mean, what we're dealing with every day is can I live the Christian life? And let's face it, sometimes we have doubts. There's temptation, we struggle, and we wonder, are we going to make it? I'm convinced if you really believe that you had everlasting life, That would be a lot easier for us to resist temptation to do the work of Christ. But because we doubt whether or not we're going to make it, we kind of do it with half a heart. i got this little parable I want to share with you real quick. Just suppose, it makes a point. Suppose that right now an angel should appear on the platform. I always wish that one really would when I said that. But just suppose an angel appears. And he says, I've got good news for you. I have here with me an abundantly big bag of golden keys. And everybody that is here at Bible Army Camp today, I've got very exciting news. We're going to give you a golden key because you came. And everybody that has that key is guaranteed of everlasting life. You have everlasting life. It'll be in your hands. All you've got to do is have that key on your person. When Jesus comes, you've got everlasting life. All right, first of all, how many of you would be excited to know that you get this, use your imagination, you got a key, he hands it to you, you got it in your hand, and the angel says, just hang on to it, that's your everlasting life, it's right there, don't let it go. I would probably duct tape it to my body. (laughs) Or something, just to make sure that I never lose my key. But before the angel disappears, he says, now keep in mind, if you're ever tempted to sin, the devil will appear or one of his minions, and they have to hold your key before you can sin. Maybe you'll get it back. Maybe you won't. All right. So you're excited. You got your key. You got everlasting life. Praise the Lord. But um, you're pushing your cart down through the supermarket aisle, and you've struggled with drinking before. And you see, you know, in order to get your cabbage, you got to go by the alcohol section. And you slow down. You feel those old cravings. And you stop your shopping cart for just a minute there. And uh, all of a sudden, boop, a devil appears. And he said, help yourself. Just let me hold your key. You can have a drink. God is merciful. He'll forgive you later. You can get your key back. Now, some of us, we toy with the devil that way. And we're, we're willing to gamble with temptation and sin. Uh, God is merciful. God does forgive. But you know the most dangerous thing that leads to the unpardonable sin is where we get to the place where we presume on God's grace. It's a, wonder, it's a wonderful thing to understand God will forgive whosoever comes to Him in faith. It's a very dangerous thing for us to take advantage of or to to presume on His grace, to abuse His grace. And say, I plan on sinning because I know God will forgive me. Is that the attitude of a Christian? Now, if you know you've got that everlasting life in your hand, you know you've got that key, would it make it any easier for you to push your cart past the liquor section? Would a pack of cigarettes be worth more to you than the assurance that you've got that key in your hand? Would you want to lose that? And so I think if we understand that when we confess our sins to the Lord, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, you come to Jesus just as you are. He gives you everlasting life. Now, if you really believe you've got everlasting life, why do you want to mess with that assurance and play with sin? Do we all agree that you are risking that assurance when you venture back out on the devil's territory? So the question is, do you really believe that he's able? Caleb said, he is well able. The other men, immediately after he says that, notice verse 31, the men who had gone up with him said, we are not able to go against the people, for they are stronger than we. Now let me boil this down to you and make it as simple as I can for you. Within the Christian church, not even just within the Adventist church, it's in our church, but it's in all Christian churches. I hear it everywhere I go in all denominations. There are conflicting reports that come from the pulpit. One report is, God wants to save you from your sin. He can give you victory over any sin. If you think that there's a sin God can't give you a victory over, then in your mind, the devil is a better tempter than Jesus is a Savior. He is able to keep you from falling. And the same God that helped me with drinking and cursing and lying and smoking and drugs and a long litany of things, I believe He is able to help me with everything else. That He will finish the work in my life if I don't turn back. But you know what? The children of Israel, when they started their journey to Egypt, they began to worry. I'm turning this way because i got wind on my microphone. <laughs> they began to worry just in case, you know, we can't make it. The Lord's taken us to this land that's inhabited by other nations that have been there for a long time. Jacob left a long time ago. They've grown they think it's theirs now. We try and take it back. We're going to get in all kinds of trouble. We can always go back to Egypt. We know we've got jobs there. We're kind of used to the food. We know the language. We've got that option of going back. And, you know, I think that as long as you as a Christian think you've got the option of giving up, a lot of us kind of dabble in Christianity. But we don't make up our mind to go all the way to the Pacific, no matter what happens. If we make up our mind that Jesus has called us, Jesus will never, ever, ever, ever command you to do something without giving you the power to do it. Inherent in every command of God is the power to perform. The word of God, every command is a promise. If God tells you, you know, like he said to Peter, I want you to walk to me on the water... Would Jesus tell Peter to walk on the water if he wasn't able to walk on the water? No. By the way, to be a Christian in this world is a miracle like walking on water. It's almost impossible unless you've got one of those surfboards with a paddle that you guys use here. Or Jesus works a miracle and you keep your eyes on him. The only way Peter could walk on water is if he kept his eyes on Jesus. The only way you can live a victorious life is if you keep your eyes on Christ constantly. If you take your eyes off Jesus and you start looking at the wind and the waves, you'll begin to doubt and say, I don't know, maybe I better start swimming back to the boat. And we consider our retreat options. As soon as they started talking like that, you get these two two messages that are coming. One says, you can make it. You can be victorious. You can be like a Christian. You can be a new creature with a new heart. It's not like that bumper sticker that says Christians are just forgiven. We are not just forgiven. We are transformed by the renewing of our minds. We are not conformed to the world. Christians ought to be different. He's called us to represent Him. We are to be Christ-like. And through His power, we are able. But you're going to hear a lot of emphasis on... Well, this was a nice trip that we took out here in the wilderness, and we saw some wonderful miracles, and the promised land is actually not a real place. It's a spiritual place. We aren't really expected to actually inhabit it. We inhabit it in our minds. You'll hear all these strange convoluted messages that say everything other than he wants to save you from your sin, and he is able to save you from your sin. Ten of the spies said, we are not able. These were handpicked. And then they began to give the the rationale for it. And they gave the children of Israel a bad report. They said the land that we spied out is a land that devours the inhabitants thereof and all the people we saw in it that are of great stature. And there we saw the giants, the descendants of Anak who came from the giants. And we were like grasshoppers in our own sight. And that was a problem. They are thinking like grasshoppers. And so we were in their sight. And all the congregation, I'm in chapter 14 now, All the congregation lifted up their voices and cried and the people wept all that night and all the children of Israel murmured against Moses and Aaron and the congregation said to them, if only we died in Egypt. Be careful what you pray for. Or if only we died in this wilderness, why did the Lord bring us to this land to fall by the sword? Why did I ever try to start being a Christian? It's too hard to be a Christian. We got too far to go. Our wives and our children will become victims it would be better for us to return to egypt they decided to turn around before they got right on the borders of the promised land they started talking about ter- they could throw a rock over the jordan river and they started to turn around they said let's find another leader let's have an election and moses and aaron fell on their faces and w- before the assembly Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who spied the land. They spoke to all the congregation and said, The land through which we pass is an exceeding good land. If the Lord delights in us, He will bring us into this land and give it to us. Only do not rebel against the Lord. How were they rebelling against the Lord? By doubting that He could bring them all the way and by losing Faith. You know, I think one of the keys to a victorious Christian life is we have to make up our mind when we're going to follow Jesus that there's no turning back. I'm inspired by the stories that you have in the Bible of people like Elisha. When he was called by by Elijah, Elisha said, "Let me say goodbye to my mother and father." He was out farming, wealthy farmer. He turned away from his inheritance. He sacrificed the oxen he was farming with and he used the implements as the firewood so there was no turning back. Jesus said, I quoted this to you yesterday, if any man puts his hand to the plow and looks back, he's not worthy of the kingdom. You know, one time Elijah did have another servant before Elisha. And when Elijah took off to run through the wilderness, his servant turned back. But when Elijah asked Elisha, he says, look, God's called me to go to Bethel. He's called me to go to Jordan. He's called me to go to Gilgal. You can stay here if you want to. Elisha said, not on your life. With a vow, I'm going to go with you. I'm not going to stop following you. He would not turn back. Naomi said to Ruth, you want to turn back? You've got that freedom. What did Ruth say? No way am I turning back. She said, and this is if you have your Bibles, you can look in the book of Ruth, chapter 1, verse 16. Sorry, friends, I marked most of my verses in advance. Oh, you know, your people are my people. Your God is my God. Where you go, I will go, and there will I be buried. The Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but you and death separates separates us. Wherever you go, I'm going to go. Where you lodge, I'll lodge. Your people are my people. Your God is my God. Where you die, there I'll die, and there I'll be buried. I will be crucified with Christ. The Lord do so to me and more also of anything but death separates you and me. I'm not turning back no matter what. Some of you know the story about Cortez. In 1519, when his men landed, and he just had four or five hundred men, they decided to take on a continent. And he knew that they were going to have a hard time along the way. So just to remove the option that some of them would get discouraged and turn back, you know what Cortez did? After they marched out of sight of the ocean, he sent some men back and he said, burn the ships. And they set the ships on fire and the men looked back in horror and saw that their way of escape was gone. And Cortez said that means that the only way we're going to survive is if we go forward and we are victorious. Once those soldiers realized the only way to survive was to win, you had 600 conquistadors that took on a million Aztecs. And they took Mexico City. I'm not approving of what they did. I'm just telling you the motivation. You understand? He knew how to motivate his soldiers. I'm not endorsing history here. I'm just telling you what happened. He knew that in order for them to take on a whole nation, they had to see that the only way to survive was forward. Forward. How about us as a church? Do you still in the back of your mind have the option that, well, I can sin now, I can turn back now, I can always repent later? You know one of the reasons we're losing so many young people? Is because, and I've heard it so many times, I've been to a lot of schools and academies. You know, a few years ago I was at HMA. We did a week of prayer. It's been about 20 years ago now. And... Uh, But I've been to a lot of our schools, and you know what a lot of the young people say when they counsel with me and they're, they're being honest? They say, you know, Pastor Doug, I'm young. There's a lot of things out in the world I haven't seen, code for, tried. And, you know, I think I want to just find out for myself what's going on out there, and then I'll come to Jesus after I've evaluated, you know, what the options are for myself. I mean, I've gone to this Christian church and this Adventist school all my life and he said I really haven't been able to make my own decision and you know it'll be there and I know Jesus is merciful and I'll come back and they're not really taught you got to make a decision right now that you're going to be a Christian because the devil that's exactly what he wants you to think I'll come back later praise God some do but you know it's very very dangerous for us to toy with eternity that way and think I can always turn back I can always change my mind. We need to make up our mind that there is no turning back for a Christian. You know, it's a wonderful story if you keep reading your Bible. The people prayed. They're in Numbers. And they said, Lord, if we had died in this wilderness and God said to them, all right, that's what you really want. He said, this generation that did not have faith that they could go all the way is not going to go all the way. Those spies that did not believe they could make it are not going to make it. Now think about the ramifications of that. And and this is a sober thought. How far had those spies come until they got to the borders of the Jordan? Had the spies experienced the Red Sea parting for them? All 12 spies experienced that. Had they seen the plagues that fell on the Egyptians? Had they experienced the miracle of victory over the Amalekites, yeah, when they are attacked from behind, they experienced the water out of the rock. They experienced daily the bread from heaven. They experienced the light of God's presence glowing in the camp above the, the sanctuary. They heard the voice of God from the mountains. They had had a real experience, but the problem with those spies is they had doubts that God could bring them all the way. You know, the devil's always going to try and put doubts in your minds, but you cannot entertain those doubts. You've got to make up your mind to be a Christian. You've got to make up your mind that if Jesus is not the way, then God help us. What is? I mean, think about it. I've been out there, I've tried everything you can imagine. And sometimes when I get discouraged, I think, like the disciples said, when Jesus said, Are you going to forsake me now? Peter said, Where are we going to go? what else is there? Am I going to go back to Hare Krishna? What am I going to do? Sorry, friends. I mean, what am I going to do? Where are you going to go? Everything else is so empty. You're going to go back to drugs? You can find eternal life that way? There's nowhere else to go if you want to live forever except Jesus. So you just got to make up your mind. I am going to bet all in on this hand. I am not going to hold back any chips and say, just in case I lose this round, I'll bet on a different hand of cards. Please forgive my metaphor with gambling. You know about my checkered past. <laughs> so I'm not encouraging that. I'm just, The idea is that you've got to go all the way and say, this is, I'm going to be a Christian. I'm not going to turn back. This is the option that Jesus has given us. I, I see the clock and I'm running out of time. You know, Jesus gives us one warning. Luke 17, speaking of the second coming, verse 31. Luke 17, 31. In that day, he who is on the housetop and his goods are in the house, let him not come down and take them away. And likewise, the one who's in the field, let him not turn back. And then Jesus says, one of the shortest sentences, a sermon in one sentence remember Lot's wife. She kept the option over. Angel said, don't even look back. But in her mind, she thought, well. And it's easy to empathize with Lot's wife. You know, some family's still back there. All your possessions are still back there. Easy to get distracted and look back. She said, don't look back. There's a verse Hebrews chapter 10, verse 38 and 39. Now the just will live by faith, but if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. So you've got a contradiction here between living by faith and looking back. If you're looking over your shoulder all the time, for one thing, if you're plowing a row and you're looking over your shoulder, you're going to plow a crooked row. And if you ever try try this sometime, Find a straight line on the street. Make sure there's no cars around. Try and ride your bicycle down that line. Not too hard. Now try and ride your bicycle down that line while you look over one shoulder. You're going to find out how difficult that really is. You will list to one side. If anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Hebrews 10.39 But we are not of those who draw back to perdition but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. There's a conflict between drawing back and being saved. Proverbs 4.25, Let your eyes look straight ahead and your eyelids look right before you. Ponder the path of your feet. Let your ways be established. Do not turn to the right hand or the left. Remove your foot from evil. Don't even consider turning out of the way. You know, I... uh, started out telling you I'm inspired by soldiers and sometimes what they do in their training. This is what this whole army camp is about. Not too long ago, the Navy SEALs were in the news. Of course, they were the elite team that pulled off a very risky maneuver to get Osama bin Laden. Then, not long after that, a number of them were shot down. You know what it takes to become a Navy SEAL? It's a Marine boot camp on steroids they go through the most rigorous training. Matter of fact, the training is so severe that when they get into the final week of the training, they have a doctor on staff because they push the men to the point where they could die and the doctor has to check their vitals along the way to see if they're gonna make it. They've studied and spent millions of dollars figuring out what are the limits of human endurance And they push the man up to these limits time and time again in their training. Now the amazing thing is, they go through something called Hell Week during the last week of this training. And during Hell Week, for 132 hours, they get virtually no sleep. They are badgered, they're put out in the freezing waves where they're shivering. They're denied enough food. They are, put, they tie their hands and feet and they throw them in the water and they make them try to keep from drowning while their hands and feet are tied with instructors pushing them under and holding them under so they come up choking and gasping and they're shivering violently they put them out in the waves with wave after wave washing over them in cold water and just it's hour after hour of this till you're so exhausted you ever stay up for 24 hours? praying You ever stay up for 132 hours under those conditions? Bullets flying over your head, having to carry heavy loads, just it's one obstacle course after another. And here's what makes it, here's what makes it also difficult. At any moment during Hell Week, out in front of the mess hall, there is a bell on a pole. They can quit whenever they want. All they've got to do is say, I've had it. They walk over to the bell. They have to ring the bell three times. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. Those same areas where Jesus was overcome. And while they're going through all of this, any time they want, they can say, I'm out of here. I'm ready for a warm meal, for a hot shower, for a warm bed, and to get out of this brutal treatment. And... In all the years of doing this Hell Week, typically 70 to 80 percent drop out. And the ones who drop out, the reason they drop out is because they have considered that they can ring the bell when they want and get out of it. And just knowing they have that option, they're doomed to fail. Matter of fact, there have been many that break away from their team, and their team calls them back and say, don't quit, don't quit. And they walk towards the bell, and then they come back to their team. And the officers say, if any of them have ever made any steps towards the bell, or if they even ring the bell one time, they ultimately will go back and ring the bell the other times. They end up quitting eventually. Because they've made the option in their mind that they can turn back. They're wondering how long they can last until they fail. Is that your attitude about the Christian life? I wonder how long I can make it. Or is your attitude, I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. I am persuaded that he that has begun a good work in me is able to keep me. You know, in our church, we got a big problem because a lot of people, they look into marriage that way. They think they've got an option where they can ring the bell and get out of it. If you're going to be a Christian, you get married, there is no bell to ring. It's wedding bells and that's it. There's no quit option. There's no turning back. Sometimes we make promises. And uh, if you make a vow and you say, Lord, I'm going to follow you, whatever happened to Jephthah? You make a promise and you, you put your life on the line. You put your child on the line and you say, I am not going to break my word. We need that kind of resolve, that kind of Determination, a tenacity, say, I am going to follow you, Jesus. I am choosing to follow you now, no matter where you leave. You know what Paul said? You think the Marines had a hard time? Or those Navy SEALs? 2 Corinthians 11. Look at this. This was our last verse. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 23. Paul takes just a moment and he looks back at what the Lord had brought him through. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more. In labors more abundant. In stripes above measure. In prisons more frequently. In deaths often. He lived day to day with his life at risk. From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day, I, even Jonah couldn't say that. A night and a day I have been in the deep. In journeyings, often in perils of water, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil and sleeplessness, often in hunger and thirst, in fastings, often in cold and nakedness. And beside all these things that comes upon me daily, I'm trying to care for the church of Christ. How could any man who wrote most of the New Testament have endured all of that? Because when Paul saw Jesus on the road and he prayed and fasted for three days, He made up his mind. He said, Lord Jesus, what do you want me to do? And he said, I'm not going to turn back. No matter what happens, Lord, if I die, it doesn't matter because I am dying now. I am taking up my cross to follow you. And so whatever you throw at me, survive stoning. All those shipwrecks. Jesus said, I will never leave you or forsake you. And he said, if the Lord has sent me on this journey, I'm going to follow wherever he leads, and I'm not going to turn back. You know, friends, I think that's where the peace comes from. You saying, I'm crucified with Christ. Lord, I'm going to follow wherever you leave. I believe that you are able to bring me into the promised land and that we're going to make it. Jesus is offering you a golden key right now. It's not just a parable. If you believe that he is able, all things are possible to him that believes. He is able to keep that which you commit unto him, but you must make up your mind, Lord, I'm going to follow wherever you leave. Where else are you going to go? I will not leave you or forsake you. And before we have our closing prayer, I just wanted to ask, I believe there are some here today that maybe you've been looking at the bell. You've been thinking about the option of giving up. And you need to make up your mind, no matter what happens, even if I die, I'm not going to ring that bell. Doesn't matter that 50% might be giving up. I'm not going to give up. I'm going to, if Jesus could set his face and look at the cross and go through what he did, and he's the one that we're following, then can he give us his mind? Can he give us his victory? You can have everlasting life right now. He's promising it to you. And he can give you grace to live moment by moment a new life. Do you want to be a soldier in that army? Are you willing to follow where your commander leads? Will he command us to do something we can't do? Everything he commands us to do, we can do. Then would you like to stand with me as we close with prayer and say, Lord, by your grace, I'm going to go all the way. Father, as we come before you right now, we pray that you will give us that, that joy, that peace of knowing that you are able to keep that which we commit unto you against that day. Please fill us with the Holy Spirit. I pray you'll be with each person here in our very struggles, Sometimes we get discouraged and we fall and we think, am I ever going to make it? Help us to have that mind that Paul had where we are agreeing that we are crucified with Christ, that it's not us that live anymore. We're not gonna live for our own comfort and convenience. We're part of an army that even though trials and cold and privation may come, that we've made up our minds that we are not gonna look back. That where you go, we will go. Where you lodge, we will lodge. Your people are our people. And that we'll be crucified with Christ. Bless each person. Bless us this Sabbath day, Lord. We pray for your presence and blessing on the remaining presentations that we can be Christians in word and deed. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. God bless you. You may be seated.